Are you ready to manage your work and personal world better to live a fulfilling, productive life? Then you've come to the right place. Productivity Cast, the weekly show about all things productivity. Here are your hosts, Ray Sidney Smith and Augusto Pinaud, with Francis Wade and Art Gelwicks. Welcome back, everybody, to Productivity Cast, the weekly show about all things personal productivity. I'm Ray Sidney Smith. I'm Augusto Pinaud. I'm Francis Wade. And I'm Art Gelwicks. Welcome, gentlemen, and welcome to our listeners to this episode. Today on this cast, what we're going to be talking about is privacy and security in the age of digital. And what we want to do is we want to talk probably over the next this and the next episode really about all the things that we should be paying attention to regarding cybersecurity and uh, data privacy, which is to say that why should we be cyber cyber resilient? And that's probably what we're going to cover in this episode, plus talking about some of the cyber practices. We'll pick up next week with more cyber practices and cyber resilience practices and some of the tools that you can use to stay cyber resilient. So let's start off the conversation with why should individuals, why should productivity-focused individuals be cyber resilient? Why should they care about data security and data privacy? You scared me the other day with a with with a, a, an illustration <clears throat> that there are trolls in farms in countries all over the world. I won't list the countries that you mentioned, but you said all they're doing day and night is figuring out different ways to breach the latest defenses that we put up. And this is the constant game of trying to stay ahead of their latest techniques because they are they are they will never stop trying to get into our systems to get our information. So it's not like this is a static situation where you sort of prepare your house against hurricanes and once it's prepared, that's it. You can't do any more. This is a, a, a game against the other against other human beings who are trying to do bad things to you and you need to be constantly upping your defenses just to stay in the game. That's that's the picture I got when I spoke to you. So you're absolutely right, Francis. I, you know, uh, your interpretation of what I was saying is accurate in the sense that when we think about the way in which we have people's jobs in other countries, we won't name them, whose, you know, they show up to work every day and their job is to come find low-hanging fruit. People who are not doing good cybersecurity and to then hack into their machines, put malware of, of many different types, but ransomware seems to be the you know most prevalent today, and to then infect the computer with that ransomware, it zips your files, and then they send you a message and say, hey, by the way, uh, we saw you know what you were doing yesterday on your computer, whether that be you know browsing email, looking at you know uh, whatever you were looking at. And if you believe that data was private, we will release that data to the world if you don't pay us so that you can get this unlocked. So ransomware goes ahead and, and basically locks your data so that you can't get access to it. And if you don't have cold storage, that is a backup that was not connected to the internet, then that data is, uh, is, is now locked up on your computer, on that device that is, and can't be reaccessed. There are people out there whose daytime job it is to just look for hello hanging fruit. And for me, being cyber resilient means that we don't we step above that level and we don't stay the low hanging fruit. 
And I have to say up front, like immediately, if someone is coming after you, like an APT, what we call an advanced persistent threat actor, if, if an APT is coming after you, then they're going to probably get in. There's, there's very little you can do if there's an, a, a specific authority that wants to get into your systems. They're, 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 there's, you know, that's not what we're worried about here. There's very few times when some big organization, some government is attempting to infiltrate you. It's really the general low-hanging fruit style, you know, I, I don't like the word hackers, so I usually say, you know, criminals, cyber criminals. Uh, these people go out there looking for, uh, you know, someone to mug on the streets of, of the digital world, right? And and that is what we're trying to do here. We're trying to, to at least build up the defenses, build the moat, put up the walls of the castle so that these people can't get in. And once that happens, you can be fairly confident in keeping up those practices that will keep you secure. And from from kind of my base level perspective, if you get hacked, the time suck, the, the amount of time spent and wasted trying to restore data to be able to get rid of the malware, to get rid of the infection uh, in, in some way, shape or form takes time. It's just like any biological infection. It takes time to go ahead and get rid of that stuff. It takes time for you to get back up to speed. And who wants to spend that time dealing with being and having your systems down? And we see the major companies who are having this happen all the time. But I actually really believe that smaller enterprises, smaller organizations are infected way more often without them even understanding or knowing it. And then they get the notice, you know, from XYZ malware, you know, developer. And then they're like, oh my gosh, how did I get hacked? And it's because, you know, sometimes it's an employee who hasn't paid attention and clicked a phishing email, or it's, you know, some other poor security practice, and we'll talk about some of those, that causes people to not be aware. And then the whole organization and you individually, your productivity is impacted for days, potentially weeks, while you try to restore systems. So just don't get yourself put into that place by not doing some very basic cybersecurity hygiene. You know, I have to agree with the the time suck part of it. You don't realize how much of an impact. We think about security from the standpoint of somebody stealing something, um, and that's that's fine. You know, it it absolutely happens. Information is just as valuable that you your information is just as in is just as valuable <laughs> as the information about you. The time suck really kicks in when you realize it's happened. And now you have to go through and basically reset everything you've got to restore a level of comfort and confidence that honestly is really hard to get back to. It's that same mindset as if, say, your your house or your apartment gets broken into. It's a sense of violation that stays there and it's persistent for a long period of time. I mean, on a house, you can change the locks, you can install an alarm system, put in cameras, you can do everything to make yourself feel comfortable, but it's going to take a while before you truly feel comfortable again. Well, with cybersecurity, a lot of times the things happen and you don't know they've happened 
until well after the damage is done. And you really don't have the awareness as to how to give yourself that level of comfort back. So the preventative measures are as important, if not more important than the retroactive ones after something's happened, at least in my book. The question with that and is the problem is how much people understand how do these things and fix these things and what is the cost? I'm a lot of times there simply people don't understand. I, I understand the the violation stand, standpoint of view, but that required that you see the thing as yours. When that same break in happen on a place that you don't care, you don't have that feeling of violation, you know, and that really make a difference on how people look at this component. Yes, when it's your things, you get that feeling, but when they are like other things, you may not get it. And when you don't get that feeling, you may not take the correct measurements or the measurements to the correct stand so you can avoid the things to happen. If you think about it, if you, a lot of people who go and go to Carental, okay, on their vehicle, they will lock, they will close the vehicle and everything else. On the Carental, unless their bag is in, who cares? It's a Carental. That is the mentality that a lot of people bring to these things. And it's not different when you bring it to cybersecurity. The way you do anything is the way you're going to end up doing everything. So if you don't understand that, the importance of that component, then you are not going to take the measurements needed so you can really help make that better, not worse. I'll I'll definitely agree with that because when you think about it from a business standpoint, security is often, I don't want to say it this way, but it's, I'm going to say it, it's forced upon the people who are using it. I mean, you have to use a VPN to get into your network. You have to reset your password every X number of days. And I don't know of anybody who isn't in the field who says, yeah, I think that's a great idea. I think that's wonderful. I'm totally fine with having to do those steps. It's an impedance to, or it's an impediment to getting work done because it's extra steps necessary before I can actually get my work done. Even though if those pieces aren't in place, you're not going to have any work to do because very bad things will happen. So it's that point counterpoint. And you're right, Augusto, when we're thinking about our own personal stuff, it has direct personal impact on us. The only way something that a security violation in a business environment would have a direct personal impact on us is if the violation was our fault or through our own neglect, we allowed it to occur and then it negatively impacts us. Otherwise we're like, man, you mean I got to reset my password again? That kind of thing. Right. But when you think on passwords, Art, one of the things is when you look, and this is sad, but when you look at the t- most 10 most common passwords that people use on the personal level, you understand the lack of understanding they have even on their own security. So 
when you cannot understand why a password need to have certain components on your personal let's 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 put aside a moment cybersecurity and let's put aside for a moment the business aspects let's talk about the personal life okay when you can drive around and and know that most passwords are going to be password 1234 and people not only is using that is repeating those okay what produce on the business side is that the admins then need to go to a much more extent that they will necessarily go if people were doing their part because they need to assume that the default password of people, it's going to be one, two, three, four. So that makes some of the systems needed to go to two or three steps more, maybe that if people were paying attention, were needed. That is exactly where we break the balance between productivity and security. That said, it's not broken because the people managing the security don't want you to be productive, okay? It's broken because there are people in that environment who has zero understanding of the importance of. So they use... You know, the, the reason you, you force people now to refresh their passwords, okay, is because people used not to change their passwords and put it in a post-it. So you break this, there is no more security. Not only that, if we go into development, it used to be first they, they implement the changing on the password, and now the system needs to save what was the last password you used so you don't repeat it because then people were doing, oh, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, N, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, F, 1, 2, 3. No, you, now the, the developers has come to the point that needed to analyze what was your password so you don't repeat it. But what that shows is not on the security side of the enterprise. What that shows is your lower denominator doesn't understand anything about the importance of cybersecurity that force these people to go to extremes that then for the people who may understand that, even for the people who don't, now start getting in in the path of the productivity. In the name of the security, I'm not going to to completely disagree on on that, but it's forced upon everybody because these people who simply don't understand the importance of the password. Well, and it's also, again, that convenience factor too. I mean, I, I would be willing to bet that you could go to one out of 10 people and you would find that the pin number for their ATM card is either one, two, three, four, four, three, two, one, the last four digits of the card or the last four digits of their phone number. I mean, it's a, it's a safe, easy bet because people don't want to have to work to do it. It's one of the reasons why two factor authentication is popular, not only because it's a layer of security, but because in most cases, you can authenticate off of a device that you have that's not going to ask you a lot of questions. It's making assumptions that because it's yours and there's authentications there, it can approve you all the way through. I, I don't think it changes the core requirement, though. We have to understand and we have to convey to everybody that Part of the price that we have to pay in being productive is we have to take into consideration that 
if we are not being secure about what we're doing, eventually that work will be lost, wasted, stolen, or otherwise abused. And it, sh- and it should be just a normal part of our process consideration. When we think about, when I sit down each morning and I log in, one of the first things I do is I connect into my LastPass. So I have access to all my user accounts and I have that information stored. It's part of a routine. I don't even think about it anymore. I look at the icon and say, oh, I'm not logged in. And I log in and it's done. Now it will kick me out multiple times as I change things and I'll get re-logged in just from a security standpoint. But it's part of the process. And I think we all have to take that into consideration. Whatever productivity tool we're looking at, we often evaluate them based on how convenient they are, what's their user experience, you know, what's their funding model, so they're going to be around in a year. But we also need to take into consideration what's their security model, especially if we're looking at tools like note-taking tools. How are they securing the notes? How is it transported? You know, questions that can sometimes get a little technical and, and are uncomfortable to know or difficult to know what the right answer is. Uh, we have to take that stuff into consideration and look at the content we're putting in there and say, do I really want to park this in some place that I can't say that I'm 99.9% sure that it's going to be okay? These are all factors that we have to work into our productivity solutions so that we can have confidence. Again, we're talking trusted systems. You use a system you trust. Well, if you don't trust, it's going to send you notification reminders when you have that meeting coming up, you're, you're not going to use it. How could you trust it if you don't know that it's going to protect the information you're putting in there? Because if nothing else, you're just limiting the scope of what you can use it for. So we have to think about that with all of our tools and and our processes and procedures. Let's discuss some of the cybersecurity practices we should all be thinking about as it relates to our productivity systems. I think you make a really great point here, Art, which is that our tools should be doing a lot of the heavy lifting for us. They should be designed with security in mind, and we need to choose tools that are going to make us more secure not less while being the infrastructure, the lattice work for our productivity systems. So that in mind, what are some of the cybersecurity practices? Let's dig into this and we'll probably spend the rest of this episode and then we'll continue this in our next episode in terms of what are the cybersecurity practices that you use as well as uh, you see colleagues, clients, friends, and family use to be more cyber secure or the practices you see people do that make them less secure and how we should deal with those circumstances. And I'll start us off with, I have a particular client who has a very clear process for signing in to the ecosystem every day. So in an enterprise environment, you're going to have many different levels of security and you're going to have to log into your devices. You're going to have to log into various systems, and you may have different tools to be able to do that. Uh, you know, your enterprise level security might say, "Well, you have to use this application in order to authenticate your systems to log into all of these things." And so, in that environment, starting the day by doing all of that work, you know, getting uh, the the logged into your 
email systems, getting logged into your calendar, all of those things um, can be a bit of a, a challenge if you're in the midst of your day and then you realize that you're logged out of such and such and you need access to that. And so think about all the things you need to log into any given day and being logged out of those things increases your cyber resilience, right? So think of it from the perspective as the more persistent your login state is for all of the various applications that you're using, the greater the attack surface. That is the greater the opportunity for someone to go ahead and invade your territory. So being logged out is a good thing, but it also hampers convenience when you want to access something quickly. So what things do you need to be logged into? Say, use the Pareto principle corollary here, right? In productivity, we talk about 80% and 20% as being uh, the, the valuable items versus the lack of valuable items or its inverse. And so what are, what are the 80% of the things that you, uh, you know, generally throughout the day need to be logged into and make sure that you are logged into those things? and not worry about the 20% refuse that you log into occasionally and you'll log into it when you need to. And that way, at the beginning of the day, you spend a little bit of time consistently getting yourself into those applications so that as you get through your day, you are, not, not, you are now not worried about, oh gosh, you know, I have to run into a meeting right now and I need to look at the notes for that. How do I get into that system to look at that note to be able to be able uh, to be ready for uh, what is necessary, or I need to get my hands on this email. Oh, gosh, I'm locked out of the email system because I didn't log in at the beginning of the day on this device. So getting all of your devices logged in, I think is a really great practice. And then having an end of the day practice where you log out of those systems that you don't need to be logged in overnight, which is, of course, when uh, many other folks are working to uh, hack into your systems, uh, log out of those things so that you're not uh, persistently active and giving people uh, ready access to your system. What are some other practices that you see people using or uh, that people should be using to be more cyber resilient? How do, how do you define logging, being logged in? Do you mean like, for example, keeping your Gmail open all night what, what are, or Facebook or Twitter? Is that what you're talking about, Ray? Yes. If there is a if there is a cookie in your uh, browser that is creating a connection back to Google servers, uh, that is creating a persistent state if your device is on and Google hasn't severed the link, right? So for power saving purposes and all kinds of other things, not to get too technical, but in essence, the devices will stop talking to each other. So there won't be a, a persistent uh, stream of data, but the cookie that's sitting on your desktop inside your web browser is creating a persistent login state, which means that anybody who has access to your web browser has access to reopen your account and access your Gmail account. Now, you can do all kinds of things in order to mitigate that. And we could talk about some of those tools later. Uh, but I mean more, you don't have this problem with like bank accounts or anything else like that, because they, they will log you out. They will purposefully log you out because the security. Uh, but but there are lots of other programs in between those two that are not Google or Microsoft or Apple and are not your banking institutions or financial institutions that keep you persistently logged in. And their security is just not that great. And the data in the systems are probably important enough that you shouldn't just be allowing that stuff to sit around in the clear. That is, having a persistent login 
capability on that device. I closed on my computers each night, um, not for that purpose. It's really just to, to preserve the hard drive. Um, but I'm, I'm thinking that a computer that's turned off is secure from that persistent login. It depends on how off the computer is, right? <laughs> so, so people don't realize this, but sometimes when you turn off a computer, you don't recognize that there are lower level systems that are in, in, is still powered up. And uh, it might be the case that when you are turning off your computer, you are truly turning it off, but it also may mean that you are not. Uh, so there are settings, uh, certainly within Windows, uh, that allow you to uh, rewake the computer. So people think, oh, I closed my computer and therefore it is off. Um, that is not necessarily the case uh, because the system may ha still have the system board on. And if you're, if the device is plugged into power, it is still has a battery system management, you know, uh, battery system management board that is a, basically a mini computer that is managing power for that system. So there are varying states of what on is right uh and we have to be we have to be mindful of the fact that while you or i might understand what off means there are others in our world others in our lives who who just think well if i turn off the monitor then the computer's off or if i close the the lid on my laptop then the device is off and that does not mean that the machine is off it may disconnect from wi-fi right so it might be off the internet which is a good thing it may mean that it's not so we have to be just a little bit more mindful of what off means and do that. My thought is that the better state is to um, learn these practices and use tools that protect us whether or not we have a persistent, uh, persistent connection to the internet. And uh, that will make us more cyber resilient than just disconnecting. Now, that's different than backups, where I, where I talked about earlier, cold storage. You do want to back up your systems and then physically disconnect it both from power and the internet uh, so that you are putting that away from, from anything that could compromise the backup of that data. That's a little different than a device, which we want for convenience purposes to always be ready for us to be able to utilize uh, at a moment's notice, right? We turn on our computers, this whole notion of uh, you know, booting up or logging on to, to devices in the morning is a, a real source of uh, productivity impact on everyone, uh, especially those who work on Windows, uh, and, and that is the majority of us. Uh, when you turn on a Windows device and you boot up in the morning, right, people, you know, there's many, many memes over the course of, of the past 30 years of people going and getting their coffee and having a conversation while their computers boot up. Um, that's ridiculous, uh, you know, that we have to wait in, in for, for all of this to happen. Uh, it's also miraculous that all of that happens on a computer. But we certainly know that, you know, in those states, there are lower level systems that are on when computers are not fully turned off. And as long as there's power connected, from my perspective, if there's a power connection or a possible internet connection uh, to a device off doesn't mean safe. And we, we have a misunderstanding of, of what off means many times. So I believe what you're doing is turning off your computer and you're probably safe, but I don't want anyone listening to think they are equally safe in that regard. And if anyone out there, and I know some of you are cybersecurity professionals out there listening, so <laughs> feel free to correct me. 
uh, if I'm wrong there, but but that's kind of how I have have seen it over the years, and the misperception, the myth of many people who think they're off when they're really not. So, one of the things that I've done as a consistent point now is creating two bo- two mental boxes: what needs to be secure, what doesn't need to be secure. Uh, basically. It, it's a slightly paranoid mindset. What can be used against me? And can this be used against me in some nefarious way? And if so, then it has to go into a secure location. If it can't, then I'm not worried about it. And then it goes into a different spot. By just keeping that little mental bucket as I go through and gather things, I deal with a lot of financial services clients who are extremely security sensitive for obvious reasons. They're, you know, dealing with people's money. So thinking about, could this information be used to connect the dots to do something nefarious with them is a constant mindset when you're thinking about it in the work environment. Well, I've just extended that into my own space and saying, okay, what information do I have? And, and it's crazy things that you think about, but you don't, once you start to adopt that mindset as part of your just everyday activity, it becomes a lot easier. For example, every time I turn on my webcam to do a Teams meeting or a Zoom meeting, I'm conscious of the things that are on the wall behind me. Is there something on the wall that's a, a note that I've stuck there, or maybe there's you know a certificate or something? Is there anything back there that could cause a problem? Is there anything within visual range of the camera sitting on the desk that could cause a problem? Now, in the normal environment, I really wouldn't worry about that. But because this is working from home, this is new world, all of these factors have to be taken into consideration. So I've gotten into that mindset of just, you know, setting the borders, thinking about what's available, thinking about the piece that I'm working with and saying, okay, should I protect it? And in most cases, uh, erring on the side of caution and taking advantage of the tools that I use and how they have inherent protections in them and just leveraging those. I know I'm not going to get 100%. I know I cannot, you know, I'm not building the Great Wall of China here. Even that didn't keep the invaders out. So uh, what shot do I have? What I can do is I can do my best effort and reduce the chances of me having a problem. Something that's a little bit more business focused, but really a lot of us today have websites. There are, uh, I think there's about a billion, maybe two billion websites on on the internet today, on the World Wide Web, that is. And so uh, one in seven, one in eight, you know, people have a website if you want to, or there's at least one to to. Uh, one and a half websites per person on the uh, per, per every seven people on the planet, and so there are a lot of websites, there are a lot of blogs, and there are many people who have blogs. And so the point is, is that if you are a web publisher in any way, shape, or form, if you're putting content on the web, making sure that the web connection is secure for both you when you're putting content up there, but also the website itself and the connection between the website visitor and your website or blog or what have you uh, being secure are important. And they're important for a number of different reasons. And I just, I want to bring that to, to people's kind of 
you know, awareness that if you have a business and you have a website, make sure that it has that HTTPS, that is, it has that locked icon associated with it. And what that does is it encrypts the connection between the website visitor and your website. Now that of course makes the connection more validated, right? It's authenticated in the sense that not just uh, secure, but it gives trust to that website and therefore Google and the other search engines uh, give it a little bit of uh, greater influence in their scoring to show your website to more people. So if you care about being seen by more people you, in, from, a, from a promotional perspective, then make sure that you are getting your websites more secure. Remarkably, we put so much content into our websites today and we don't realize that when we're visiting websites, and we don't see that little lock icon, we are sending things in an insecure way over the internet. And that means that people can, what they call sniffers, just like a dog, you know, hunting is, is sniffing, looking for a scent. Uh, these sniffers are looking for this kind of uh, unmitigated traffic, this kind of unsecure traffic. And when that traffic uh, comes across a sniffer, they're gonna see that traffic and therefore be able to use that against us. So even if you are not sending what you believe is secure data, the the information may be insecure uh, and uh, not not um, particularly private, but in the aggregate, right? It's just like why Facebook is so powerful. In the aggregate, you know, the fact that I like a photo from my sister on Facebook is not you know, is not insecure. I would tell anybody, oh yes, I like that photo that my sister posted of her and her boyfriend at, you know, having drinks or whatever, um, you know, out having a good time. Uh, that's, who cares? But in the aggregate of knowing everything I like over time is a real power, right? It, it shows how you can be persuasive and influential to me and make me do things that I otherwise wouldn't, you know, do without your influence. So, this data sniffing, this ability for us to to basically siphon off large amounts of data about others is dangerous. And so we have to be mindful of that. And that's where securing websites is important. And Google understands that and the other uh, major technology companies understand that. And that's why you'll see this push for everything being HTTPS, which adds the TLS encryption to the website protocol. So uh, I just wanted to put put that little plug in there for those of you who are in a business or running a business or otherwise to make sure that you have that secure connection. Okay, hang hang on, Ray. I want to jump. I want to jump in on that because I don't want the lock icon to create a false sense of security. Though it is absolutely true that it creates a better encryption path for accessing the site, and that protect protects you against a specific type of attack. However. If you want a little bit of an eye opener, click on that lock icon at some point. When you're looking at a site, click on it because both major browsers that I use, both Chrome and Edge, give you details about that connection. It tells you the connection's secure. It tells you that the certificate's valid. It tells you how many cookies are in use. But one of the things that I find interesting is that Edge will also tell you how many trackers are coming from the website that you're visiting. So even though it's a secure connection, it doesn't mean that it's not a problematic website. And I'll use the example here. I'm looking at news.google.com, which is a, most people will use that for their news site. 
There are no trackers on there, 24 cookies involved in that site. But as soon as I follow a news article, in this case, I'm going to follow one to the Washington Post. When you go to that one and you click on the, on the lock, connection secure, 66 cookies, but there's 16 trackers coming off of that site for various ad models and ad engines. So even though it's secure, I don't know that I would necessarily consider that safe. And you have to be cognizant of that. Just because somebody can't nefariously sneak in from the outside doesn't mean that the other end of that party isn't trying to gather information as well. Now, I know why the Washington Post is doing that, and that's for ad revenue. But there are other sites that can be just as bad. Both are the major browsers that I'm aware of all, if you try to access a straight HTTP site now, especially um, Chrome, will flag it and say, this is not a secure site. Matter of fact, in many cases, it'll block it and say, look, you really don't want to go here because it's not secure, uh, which is good. I mean, that's up to website administrators to make sure they have valid uh, HTTPS certificates attached to their sites. But it's still something we should be aware of that security has multiple layers to it and we shouldn't get comfortable just because we see one icon that says, yeah, you're good. Well, it's probably more than that. Yes. And there are multiple layers of what security you can apply in a certificate between. So there are, they're kind of like, uh, think of it as three different layers of security that you can have. So SSL certificates generally are connected between you and the, and the website and then on the website itself, and then between the website and the the uh, the terminating individual. And what that means is that if you have a certificate installed with and within the web hosting account, that's one layer of security above just a connection between the server and the individual that's connecting to it. So there, there are all of these really weird um, additional layers of security. I don't want to get too much into it, but we have to be mindful of the fact that even when we see the lock icon, that doesn't necessarily mean that the security is the highest level of security. There are varying levels of uh, SSL encryption, and we don't know the level of that security, even though we see the the locked icon, whether it's gray or green in your particular browser, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's more secure or less. And to your point, Art, yes, it could be that there are still lots of privacy implications uh, about the data being tracked, even when it is a secure connection. All right, so with that, I am going to uh, close out our conversation for this week, and we will pick up next week with more privacy practices and, and security practices that we all want to talk about, plus many of the tools we all use in staying secure so that we can stay more productive. And while we are at the end of our discussion today, the conversation doesn't have to stop here. If you have a question or a comment about what something that we've discussed on this cast, go ahead and visit the episode page. It's the three digit uh, code for the episode number after forward slash uh, productivitycast.net forward slash and then the three-digit number. Uh, they're on the podcast website at the bottom of the page. You can feel free to leave a comment or a question. We'll be happy to read and respond to those as necessary. Um, if you have a topic you'd like us to discuss on a future cast, feel free to visit productivitycast.net 
forward slash contact, uh, you can leave a voice recorded message. I think it's under a minute or under 90 seconds. And or you can type us a message into the contact form. We'll get that. And uh, maybe we'll answer your question in a future mailbag episode or otherwise. Uh, I want to express my thanks to Augusta Pinaud. Francis Wade and Art Gelwicks for joining me here on Productivity Cast this and every week. You can learn more about them and their work by visiting productivitycast.net and finding uh, them. I'm Ray Sidney Smith, and on behalf of all of us here at Productivity Cast, here's to your productive life. That's it for this Productivity Cast, the weekly show about all things productivity, with your hosts, Ray Sidney Smith and Augusto Pinaud, with Francis Wade and Art Gelwicks.